Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Ask Paul Kirtley. In this episode, we're going to talk about power in the wilderness, water purification, chaga, what I've got in my pockets and what you do when you get the silent treatment. Hello and welcome to episode 18. It's going to be one of the last episodes of 2015. So let me say, first of all, thank you so much for making this show as popular as it has been, for making the show a success. Um, I wasn't sure if it was going to be to start off with. It was an idea that I had. I was being asked a lot of questions on email and really struggling to answer them and I thought this might be a way of doing it and I was going to do it as an audio podcast to start off with and then I also something else in a different area completely gave me the idea of doing it maybe as a video show as well and actually now it's turned into both it's audio and it's podcast and it's great that people are able to get access to the answers to these questions in whichever way suits them best whether you're watching this on your phone whether you're watching it on your laptop whether you're listening to this as you're driving somewhere in your car it's great it's an absolute pleasure and it's an honor that I can take some time out of your day and that I can give you quality uh, material and quality answers that you think are worthy of your time and I'm very very grateful for that and I never take it for granted but thank you very very much for making this show making this podcast, making this video series a success in uh, this uh, second half of 2015. And I'm hoping to squeeze at least one more in before the end of the year. And then we're going to start off and hit the ground running with more great shows in 2016. And I know there are lots of questions waiting. Um, I've struggled still to keep up with questions, but I'm getting a lot of good quality questions. And, and, and that's fantastic. A couple of pieces of housekeeping. I'm speaking up because there's wind in the trees here. I don't know if it's been picked up um by the by the microphone on the camera but i'm just speaking up just in case um i'm having to get over the top of that sound so apologies if it seems like i'm shouting um, or i raise my voice randomly if you can't actually hear the wind in the trees um, i'm back in sussex again at the moment back down in the south of england after being around all over the place in the last few months um, but yeah a couple of pieces of housekeeping first off um, when you send me a question, please could you do it in um, one of a number of ways um, or preferably could you not do it in a number of ways. Um, it's not that I won't necessarily see the question at the time that you send it to me, it's just whether or not I can find it when I get round to making the show and that's a key thing. So clearly um, if you send me an email that has Ask Paul Kirtley in the title or in the body I can search on my inbox and I can find that I can find a list of emails with questions in them that's that's easy for me to do so sending me an email is a really really easy way of doing it tweeting me is fine as long as you use the hashtag ask Paul Kirtley if you just tweet me a question when I search on the hashtag ask Paul Kirtley your question won't come up so you've got to remember to add that hashtag because otherwise I won't remember to, to that, that question's there it might be several weeks later and I get a lot of messages and also um, I'm not always great at remembering where things are. People message me on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram now as well as email, blog comments, YouTube comments. I can't remember, even though if I remember somebody asked me the question, I can't necessarily remember where it is. I have to rely on search functions. So use the hashtag AskPaulKirtley. Same as if you're using Instagram. 
use the hashtag AskPaulKirtley. Instagram's really well set up for using hashtags, so just stick that hashtag on there. Not by private message though. Private message on Twitter, private message on Instagram, I can't find those questions easily. Um, and I need to be able to do this quickly. I need to be able to get into my phone or get onto my laptop and go, ask Paul Kirtley, find the list of questions, put them in order, get them ready for the show. I can't be searching around trying to remember where the questions are. The whole point of this is for me to be able to get the answers out more quickly to people. If I'm having to spend time trying to find the question in the first place, it defeats the object. So email with Ask Paul Kirtley, title or body. Um, Twitter, public tweet, hashtag Ask Paul Kirtley. Instagram, public message, hashtag Ask Paul Kirtley. Okay, they're the ways or go to my blog and use the SpeakPipe function and leave a voice message for me and that voice message will be featured in the show. And also, if you go to Ask Paul Kirtley on my blog, um, top bar, Ask Paul Kirtley, there is a list of how to, to send me a question. So please do that. Um, I'm not trying, to, not trying to be difficult. I want to answer your questions. And if you send, there's four different methods of sending me questions there that should suit pretty much anybody. Um, please send me a question in one of those ways and then I can easily find your question and I can spend the time answering it rather than trying to spend the time um, finding it later, uh, further down the line when I come to record a show. So hopefully that makes sense. I'm not having a go at anybody. I'm just trying to make my life and your life a lot easier and with less friction. So thanks for that. Let's get into the questions. Um, I'm out for a hike today. Um, not a huge, hugely long hike, just get out some fresh air before Christmas. Um, this will, this show will be out in the next couple of days, I'm sure, probably Boxing Day. Um, so hopefully you've, uh, you've got out and got some fresh air over the uh, festive period if you're celebrating Christmas, after all the Christmas dinners and what have you. I'm doing a bit of pre-Christmas walking today just to, to, to generate a bit of appetite, um, but also just to get out. Um, I've been stuck in a room doing some work on a project for the last week or so, and so it's been really good to get out. But there's not a lot of light at this time of year. The days are short and it's already starting to, to get a bit darker. So I'll get on with the questions. First question is from um, Rob Jefford and he asks about water purification. Um, it's quite a long question, but I'll cut to the chase. Basically, he's in the new forest and his question is that he's finding that he's carrying quite a lot of water and would like to be able to use water from the streams and rivers to drink in order to reduce the weight of his kit, which is fair enough. You, you know, beyond going out for a short hike, particularly in warmer conditions, you can't carry enough water with you wherever you are. And particularly if you're doing multi-day hikes, you can't carry enough water. You've always got to look for ways of uh, producing water from the land around you or obtaining water from the land around you. So that's absolutely an essential question, really, for your outdoor life. Um, I've researched different methods of water purification, but I'm concerned that most of these may not remove chemicals and contaminants that may be present in streams near heavily farmed areas. And um, that is basically the question. So um, what would I suggest in terms of being safe with regards to contaminants? Now, clearly there are five things you need to worry about with water purification. Three of them are pathogenic um, organisms or types of pathogenic organisms as viruses, bacteria, and protozoa. Then there is um, just visible dirt or turbidity, and then there's also chemical pollutants. And um, assuming that you're using some sort of method that's going to neutralize the pathogens or filter them out or a combination of the two, um, then 
Um, you're also filtering out the turbidity because that's larger, then you're left with something that might have some chemicals in it. And that's the potential problem. Boiling isn't going to remove those, and the type of filters that are going to remove protozoa and a large, larger bacteria may remove some chemical residues if they're attached to dirt, so visible dirt, if it's got pesticides or other chemicals attached to it, they will be removed when you remove the dirt. And that's going to be the bulk of it. Um, physically but there may be some stuff that's uh, very very small particles or maybe uh, dissolved in the water that you might still have some issues with and the best place to look there are systems that are designed for use by the military that are designed for use in nuclear chemical and biological warfare sort of situations and they tend to have activated carbon filters in them now there used to be a great um, company in the UK producing them called Premac. I don't believe they're still in business anymore. I can't find any record of them on the internet, unfortunately. They used to provide an excellent little filter um, or several different filters. One that was a drip filter that sat on top of a NATO bottle, another one that was a pump system. But there are other systems which contain activated carbon um, and I would Google those and if anybody watching this show has got any activated carbon um, filter products that they'd like me to mention to my viewers and uh, that I may not be aware of, um, it's, not a, it's not a plea for free kit. Um, it's just that I like to be able to be a conduit for good information to, for the people who watch this. So um, search on activated carbon water purification. You will find quite a lot of stuff that is aimed at uh, small holdings and households and also um, NGOs for use in the field when they're going out and doing disaster relief and that sort of thing. But you will find some more personal sized products as well. Um, but uh, unless, I mean, forestry is another issue. You know, you talk about farming, but just for people to be aware, forestry is also an issue. You know, there may be chemicals used in the, in the forestry um, where you're getting water from as well. So it is a consideration. Um, and you need to go by what you see locally as to whether or not you think it's a concern. I think in a lot of cases it's more of a concern um, than, than it actually is in reality. But equally, if you have reason to believe that there are chemicals in the water that may cause you some harm, then I would look towards the activated carbon filtration um, type of products. Next question, power in the wilderness. This is a question from Greg Langer. And he says, he's a great fan of my blog and videos and teaching methods and down to earth advice. Thank you very much, Greg. Um, you're very, very welcome. I appreciate you like my style. Um, if you haven't had time um, already, I'd be curious on your thoughts on power in the wild. While I do my best to cut out unneeded technology, I find that my flashlights, GPS unit and cameras are always with me and always useful. I know you take uh, fantastic videos as well, so you must have some technology you keep around. Um, have you found any good ideas for keeping everything charged? Cheers, Greg from Alberta, Canada. So Greg, um, a couple of things and, and just to separate some thinking. Um, in terms of what I might do if I'm just going for a hike and what I might do if I am making a video are slightly different, simply because um, if I know I'm gonna be making a, a video, I tend to try and have quite high quality equipment with me these days, um, rather than just filming it on a phone or something, for example, although the phone cameras are getting better and better. Um, but 
I'm going to take more kit with me as a result of that, rather than just to keep my essentials, you know, you know, my core outdoor kit running, as it were. I kind of consider beyond a compact camera or my DSLR, for example, if I'm focusing on photography. Um, beyond that, I consider the film stuff that I take with me kind of outside of that inner circle of essential outdoor kit. So in terms of the essential outdoor kit, and you mentioned flashlights, and you mentioned GPS, and you mentioned other electronics, and you might include your phone in that. Um, I certainly in include a satellite phone in that when I'm in far-flung places and I need to have the potential for some communication, or you might be thinking spot device as well. All of these things run on electricity. Um, First off, um, I would say only use them when you need to. And that sounds a completely obvious and probably somewhat patronizing thing to say, but only use them when you need to. And by that I mean, um, just have your phone, if you have your phone, have it on airplane mode unless you're actually making a call, even if you're just using it for photography. I mean, people complain about iPhones, for example, that the battery life is poor on iPhones, and generally it is because they're resource hungry. Some of the apps chew a lot of, um, chew a lot of electricity up. I know the Facebook app came under a lot of criticism for chewing a lot of electricity up out of phones. I, I personally don't have Facebook on my phone. That's another consideration. What do you actually have on on your phone um, day to day in, in terms of using the battery up. But generally, if you've got it on airplane mode, if you're not needing to communicate otherwise, then you can use it as a camera for quite a long time. A friend of mine, um, we did a hike in Scotland. Um, it was a week long hike. He had an iPhone 4, I think it was at the time, which generally ran out within a day when he used it as a phone. He had it on airplane mode. He switched it off a lot of the time, uh, other than when he thought he might be taking photographs. It lasted all week. Um, so battery management and power management, I would say, is at, at, the, at the top. Before you think about recharging or taking external extra batteries or taking solar devices, just think about the use of the batteries. You can be, um, you can be quite frugal if you think about it, turning the sound off, turning the screen brightness down, turning the amount of time down that it takes for screens to go uh, to turn off and for the camera to turn into sleep mode if we're talking about cameras as well all of those things increase the battery time so my SLR um, the battery life's pretty good but I've turned all the sound off I've turned the review off so when you take a photograph I don't get an automatic review of the photograph I don't need to see that um, but if the LCD comes on every time I take a photograph it's going to run the battery down much more quickly the same as if you're videoing if you don't need the LCD on and you can turn it off like the secondary camera that I've got over there that's just running as a backup I've got the screen on the back of that turned off so that the battery will last the length that I'm recording. Those sorts of things make a big, big difference. Um, head torch. A lot of people use head torches more than they need to. Um, your eyes adjust to the dark over time. Yep. Now, if you go from bright to dark, you're not going to be able to see. So if you go out of the house that's brightly lit into your backyard, into, into the back garden or into the street that doesn't have a lot of bright street lights, you're not going to be able to see very well. You'll trip over things. And our natural instinct is to reach for a light switch, leap for the, reach for a light that's going to illuminate the yard or take a, take a torch with us. But when we're in the woods, when we're on trips, if you let your eyes adjust to the dark, you can, rather than as soon as it gets a bit dusky, turning your head torch on, you can operate much longer um, without using a head torch than you might think you, you would be able to otherwise. On a moonlit night, often I don't use a head torch because you don't need to. It's like having a, a lamp. It's like having a street lamp there. Um, 
illuminating what you're doing. Now clearly you need to be safe. You don't want to be wandering around in really dark woods where you've got branches sticking out where you might walk into them and damage your eyes. That's clearly counterproductive. But do think about um, when you employ your head torch and whether or not you need to employ your head torch. If you wake up in the middle of the night and need to go to the toilet, often it's light enough with a bit of residual light from the sun or if it's early in the morning there might start to be a little bit of sunrise or the moon might be out um, or you might have some cloud cover that also is diffusing some moonlight across the sky it may well be light enough for you not to need to turn your head torch on all of these things add up particularly if you're making longer journeys to uh, you not needing so many batteries now clearly i always take spare batteries for head torches because um, there may be an emergency where I'm having to deal with a casualty or signaling for help or just making my position known for a longer period of time. So I take spare batteries, but clearly if I'm not frugal with my use of the, of the head torch, I'm going to need more still or I'm going to eat into the ones that could be useful in an emergency. So frugal use of batteries, again, GPS, exactly the same. A lot of people keep their GPS switched on all the time. Now that can be useful for trekking where you've, where you've been or tracking where you've been, sorry. Um, and you can download that into a mapping app and all those sorts of things. And if you want to do that, that's great, but you're going to have to take more batteries. Um, personally, I only use a GPS for double checking where I am. So my primary method of, of navigation is map and compass and relating the map to the ground is the first way. Using the compass is a sort of second tier. Um, I use a lot of natural navigation as well, so just maintaining my orientation um, using the sun and the stars and whatever's around. Um, listen to that great um, podcast interview with Tristan Gooley for the breadth of, of, of knowledge that sits under the remit of, sits under the umbrella of natural navigation. There's a lot that you can use there to map compass, natural navigation, I use most of the time. Under certain circumstances, I may want to double check where I am. So I may be in a whiteout in the hills and, you know, it can be very difficult to know where you are. Now, clearly you should be um, basically using dead reckoning. You should be counting paces. You should be timing. You should be walking on bearings. Um, you should be doing all of those things and you should be capable of doing those things. But sometimes, and it's more the case when I'm ski touring than I am when I'm hiking in the mountains in winter because it's harder. You can't count paces as easily when you're skiing. Um, the length of your stride is a lot more variable. So certainly when I'm ski touring, I take a GPS unit such as the um, the Fjell Tour film that's on my blog. Have a look at that, um, the Norwegian adventure. Um, we had some really bad weather a couple of years ago when we did that trip, um, really unsettled weather in the Norwegian mountains. And there were, there were a few days when it felt like we were just skiing with a white paper bag on our heads. It was very disorienting. Um, and just having a GPS occasionally just to check that we were right with where we were was, was reassuring. And there were very, very, very few times when we really needed to, it was just reassurance. And other, the rest of the time that GPS is turned off. Now the batteries would have run out long before I needed to check my position if I just had the thing on all the time. Um, so again, frugal use of batteries. So I think the headline there is frugal use of batteries for your core stuff, but then have emergency backup batteries for things that are critical or that may be critical under certain circumstances. Then when it comes to camera equipment and those sorts of things, you really have to go on the basis of experience. 
Um, the battery life of the cameras, like the camera that I'm using here is a professional video camera. It's got a professional video camera battery in it. Um, it's an extended life Canon battery and they last for a long time, um, but they cost £200 per battery. That's the problem. So um, it, it's about investing in the right stuff and knowing the equipment um, and using it and taking enough batteries where it's gonna last. So my, my little compact camera, my little Canon that I do some vlogs and, and blogging with sometimes, the battery on, battery on that camera is pretty weak. It goes from being full to being empty very quickly, particularly when you're videoing. And I'd struggle to video a whole episode of this show on it, for example, if it lasted more than about 20 or 30 minutes because the battery is just gonna be dead. And um, so if I was using that to video a trip, I'd need loads and loads and loads of batteries. Whereas if I was taking this slightly bigger camera with me, um, I'd only need a couple of long life batteries, the professional batteries, and it would last me the time. Um, so it's really a question of, of how much you want to invest, how much you think you're gonna be filming. Clearly, if you're only filming little bits and pieces every day, then maybe um, a small camera with a few batteries is enough. GoPros are, underrated for just general cameras and um, people use them a lot as action cameras clearly that's what they were designed for um, uh, but if you put them onto the medium setting as opposed to the ultra wide setting they're much more like a normal camera and you can put them into the narrow setting as well for more close-up things like this i could conceivably record these shows on a trip if i was doing a trip and needed to be really lightweight on a gopro i might need uh, some sort of external microphone just like like this to pick up the sound um, but they, those, the recorders that you use with those typically run on AA batteries and they last a long time. So um, a GoPro and an external recorder is going to last you very, very well. You're not going to need a lot of batteries. It's going to be quite lightweight. It's going to be quite compact. So it's really about fitting the kit to the trip and, and also um, how much you can carry, how much time you're going to be recording. And then if you're going to be recharging, is it possible to recharge with an external recharger? So for example, you can um, recharge GoPros with an external recharger because you can use the USB fit, fitting just plug it in recharge I do that on some trips I just take a, one of those external charging batteries to charge up my existing GoPro batteries that's a good addition um, equally you can use that to, to charge up phones if you need to and uh, then you might want to think about maybe some sort of solar device as well and there are, there are plenty on the market to choose from um, of differing quality and differing size um, I know that the, the Power Monkey ones are pretty decent these days. Um, the Voltaic Designs, I think they're called, they're in New York State somewhere, they're very good. Um, and there are various other ones as well that people use that are well suited to the outdoors. But you've got to be going somewhere sunny and you've got to be able to have, um, have some... Uh, have some access to the sun. And clearly you could be paddling in Alberta or you could be paddling, you go to Manitoba and do a trip there, for example. Um, but if you can't have your uh, battery and uh, more importantly, the solar cells exposed to the, uh, the light during the day, then maybe that's not the best option. Um, I know of some people who have stuck the um, solar panel on the outside of a pelly case then run the cable inside the pelly case and um, epoxied 
that line, that hole that they've drilled through the case and put the, the wire through and then epoxied it so it's watertight and then th they can have that sat on top of their gear in their canoe and charge the batteries inside. That's a good solution, but it's more expensive. It's customizing kit. So it depends on how important the filmmaking is to you at the end of the day. If it's just something you're doing for personal use or if you're investing a bit more time and money and effort into, into getting the film um, because it's part of what you do in another way. So hopefully that helps. Um, Greg, if you've got further questions, please ask, because we could talk about those, these sorts of things all day. Pockets, this is a question from Neil Bennett. Hi, Neil, um, good to hear from you. Neil's been on a few courses with us and um, always great company in the woods. Haven't seen you for, for too long, Neil, um, but it's good to hear from you. Um, his question is, what have you got in your pockets? Um, well, if we're talking about in the woods, Neil, typically what I have with me, um, I have the same setup. Um, I like to have, sounds a bit sad, but I like to be organized. I like to have a place for everything and everything in its place. And in terms of the trousers that I use in the outdoors, I use Fjallraven trousers most of the time when I'm in the woods. Um, uh, I use, sometimes I use some Lundhag trousers for hiking in the mountains because I find them a little bit more comfortable for, for hiking. Um, they've got elasticated knees and various other components that I find particularly comfy. So for example, the hikes that I was doing recently in Patagonia, I was wearing um, those Lundhag trousers and I was probably wearing them in episode 16, I think it was when I was in Patagonia. So those are those trousers, but typically wearing Fjallravens, but they've got similar pocket arrangements too. Um, sort of waist pockets and two thigh pockets. They've got decent belt loops and a belt, um, and I wear a strong belt with them. That's typically something I look for in, in outdoor trousers. And then my waterproof trousers, I've got some Norina Recon, um, the old style. I've got a couple of pairs of those from years ago, but they're bomb-proof and they last a long time. I've got two different sizes, but one is my normal size of trouser, um, and the other one is slightly bigger, so I can wear them in really cold conditions and get more thermals underneath, but it's the same setup, two thigh pockets, to waist pockets um, with, and they all have zips on with the, with the waterproof trousers, with the Gore-Tex trousers. It's the same setup. So what I tend to have, I like to have a folding locking blade in my, um, in my right pocket um, that's attached to my belt with a piece of paracord um, so I don't lose it. That, that sits in my pocket. Here I'd like to have a um, DC4, um, a sharpening stone and a small cuts kit as well. So that's the kind of stuff that goes with my knife. Whether or not I have a belt knife on, so I have a lock knife, cuts kit, and for little burns and splinters and that sort of thing, and then a sharpening stone. Um, in this pocket on this side, I have a fire steel um, of some description, a ferro rod that again is attached to my belt with a piece of paracord. Not the belt loops because they can pull off, they can easily be damaged and rip off. The paracord goes around the belt so it's going to be secured um, and it's not going to be lost. That goes in the left pocket and that's always there and that can be struck with the folding knife there. So whether or not I've got a belt knife or anything else, bushcraft knife, I can light fire with those two things. Then I also like to have maybe a cigarette lighter and a waterproof uh, container with some matches in, in this pocket here. And then maybe sometimes a notebook as well. Um, and a hank of paracord, um, a hank, not a huge hank, but enough that can be wrapped onto, onto my hand, hanked up and popped into my pocket. Um, there's a video somewhere about how to hank in that way. Um, I'll put a link in the show notes um, for the show as well. Um, that is there, you know, you can get a good few bow drill lengths of cord out of that or, um, you know, repair 
equipment. It's just an extra piece of cord that's there for, for when I need it. And that's what I like to have on my immediate person all the time. And um, also I typically have a piece of uh, cord with a micro light on it and a whistle. Um, sometimes that is around my neck when it's not dangerous. You know, there's arguments about, oh, well, you could, you know, fall down a bank and catch yourself on a branch and hang yourself. Yeah, I could, but that's unlikely. More likely is if I'm canoeing and I fall out of the canoe and it catches on something and I drown. So when I'm canoeing, I don't wear it there. I keep it in my buoyancy aid. But when I'm hiking, I'll often have like a necklace. Um, and there's ways of creating um, there's ways of creating a loop that will break if you're about to hang yourself. You know, ram if you drop through a tree Rambo style. Um, you know, you're not going to hang yourself up in the tree. You can actually land on the ground and and sew your arm up or whatever it is you need to do. Um, so I'm being slightly facetious, but the point is I like to have a whistle and a light on me. Even if I've got a bigger head torch, what if you need to change your head torch batteries? Having a micro light is a good thing to have. If you've dropped something, I've sometimes gone to change batteries in torches, head, headlamps um, or, or hand torches, and you drop a battery or you drop the cap. We all make mistakes sometimes, we all fumble. Just having a, a micro light that you can find it easily rather than fumbling around on the ground for longer maybe putting your hand down into something you don't want to be putting your hand into um, is, is a much better option. So those are the things that I like to have on my person. Most of those are in my trouser pockets. Good question, Neil. Should probably write an article on that at some point. Okay, question is about Chaga, and this is from Tank Tracks Bushcraft. Um, and he says he's been on the lookout for there goes the wind again, so I'm shouting a little bit. I've been on the lookout for chaga fungus, but as yet not found any. Do you have any advice on finding this fungus? Um, a lot of people do call it uh, chaga fungus. Um, I was in a store the other day, Planet Organic. I was in the other day buying um, various bits and pieces, and I noticed that they had in the tea section, um, they had some chaga tea, which I thought was quite interesting. Um, but it, it says it actually said chaga mushroom on on that chaga mushroom tea is what it said. Now, for the uninitiated, they might think that it's they're looking for a mushroom. So, I don't mean to be patronising, but just for anybody watching this, you're not looking for a mushroom. Um, chaga is not a mushroom. Um, it's an infection of a tree which causes a growth that's abnormal. It's a little bit like the difference, and it's a slightly gross analogy, but it's like the difference between athlete's foot and a wart. Athlete's foot is kind of like your, your fungus, the sort of fungus you're going to see growing on the forest floor. Um, chaga is more like a wart, where it, it causes your skin to grow differently. So that is the effect that it has, the infection has on the tree, it causes it to grow different so you get a canker and that's the actual name for it if you search um, chaga is a russian name um, the more traditional name here for it was birch canker and it is a type of canker that's c-a-n-k-e-r and as the name suggests it grows on birch trees so you need to be looking at birch as well um, and it isn't a mushroom so that might be completely in your knowledge already but if not if you're watching this and you thought you were looking for a mushroom it's not a mushroom it's a warty like growth on a birch tree and they're not always easy to spot it can be like a burl but sometimes it can be just a bit of a swelling 
and inside of it you can sort of chip away at it a little bit it should be like a kind of corky mass like the cork a good cork out of a wine bottle or a good cork at the top of a whiskey bottle or, or that type of cork if it's solid that's what the inside of the chaga should feel like it should be quite solid that's the best stuff sometimes it can be quite punky um, and in removing it it's not like pulling a birch polypore off and I noticed just back there I think it's out of shot there was a birch um, log on the ground with some birch polypore growing on it um, it's not like that where you can just break it off um, and birch polypores are going to be growing on dead or dying birch anyway you could have a standing otherwise perfectly healthy birch tree with some chaga cutting that out of the tree is going to seriously damage if not kill the tree so you need to be selective about where you remove it from as well so you're looking for a kind of warty like bulge or growth on the outside of the tree that's abnormal like an abscess um, or some sort of wart um, inside it should be corky and only if you're sure you're not going to completely damage an otherwise healthy tree would I be removing it um, just the same with bark um, now if you're out in the middle of nowhere where there's millions and millions of birch trees you know far out in Russia or northern Scandinavia or Canada um, then that's somewhere to be harvesting it clearly now if you're in your local park and you see some chagger on a tree um, don't go don't take an axe to that you know because other people are going to be enjoying that space so what I'm saying is clearly there's a middle ground there but employ some responsibility and some sensitivity to the environment before you go harvesting it but hopefully that helps and let me know if you find some it's more common than you think as well actually once you know what to look for um, Next question from Gavin Henry. Gavin had a question a few um, months ago now when I was in Canada. He had a question about his son being frustrated with bushcraft. Um, I know you've asked quite a lot of questions, Gavin. I can only get to so many of them. Here's one that popped up um, when I searched. Um, and he says, this is a personal one, um, but why did you move on from uh, Woodlaw to start Frontier Bushcraft? Um, so for those of you that don't know, um, I used to work with Ray Mears. Uh, his company is called Woodlaw. Um, I was a student of his 15 years ago. I was offered a job in 2003. I worked with him part time. I was offered a full time job late in 2005, which I then did up until the end of 2010 as course director, heading up his outdoor education business, running courses, organizing and working on expeditions with people like Lars Falt and basically I was given four things to do um, in my job description. Um, you, if you're interested in those, go to my LinkedIn profile. I'm sure it's there as part of my CV. Um, but I'd done all of those things in the five years. I'd created a staff training scheme. I'd recruited people. I'd augmented the, um, augmented the, uh, the staffing. I'd augmented the course. Um, the courses that were there in terms of the range of courses. We started the applied bushcraft course, the intermediate um, bushcraft course and various other things. I designed those syllabuses and implemented those. We'd run some new um, courses, navigation courses. We'd implemented some um, wilderness uh, medical training and various other bits and pieces. And I felt I'd done as much as I could within the remit of the job that I had. I mean, at the end of the day, um, I think the thing, and I keep being asked about this, which is why I'm answering it on here. Um, why did I leave? Because like any other job, um, I saw there were more opportunities outside 
of that job to do the things that I wanted to do professionally than there were within that job. I'd done those things, I was very grateful for the opportunity, I had a very good time working there, I worked with some really good people, um, uh, many of whom uh, you know, are still friends today, some of whom come to work with me at, at Frontier Bushcraft. Um, I, I've no regrets about that period of time at all. I think people are always, because Mears, Ray Mears is famous, people are trying to dig dirt, possibly, or people are trying to see that there was an issue where there wasn't. Um, I got to a point where I'd done all of the things that I was going to do or be able to do within the remit of what I'd been given to do. Um, I wanted to do more overseas trips, um, personally, um, which wasn't part of my job description at, uh, at Woodlaw. There wasn't the opportunity to do that within Woodlaw and that was one of the reasons that I, I left. Also, I wanted to start writing a blog um, and very, I wanted to do more speaking um, engagements on my own terms. I couldn't do that within the remit of what I was being asked to do at Woodlaw. It wasn't, it's not how their culture works. Um, that's not a comment on or judgment, that's just a fact. Um, you don't see their instructors um, talking at the bushcraft show, you don't see their instructors making their own videos about their own trips, um, everything's channeled through Woodlaw um, and I felt I found that quite constraining and so there were a number of reasons there but at the end of the day it's a job and like other jobs I've had in the past you get to a point where you decide you want to change jobs, you want to express yourself in a different way. Um, I wanted to be self-employed, it's not something that I'd done before and I'm very, very happy with the decision. You know, I'm five years down the line now um, and I don't regret a minute of those five minutes either. You just have these different seasons in your life. So that's, you know, that's the answer. Um, there's nothing more to it than that. I did a job, I enjoyed it. Um, came to the end of what I felt I could do there within the remit of the job description. Um, there were more opportunities to do the things that I wanted to do outside of that job than within it. And, and that's the path that I followed and I'm completely, uh, completely happy with that decision. And I'm equally, I'm very happy to have had the time there as well. So that's, that's, that's the reason. Um, nothing more sinister or complicated than that. Um, and another one from Tank Tracks, and this is a bit of a, a funny one just to finish off. Um, having booked a course with us next year at Frontier Bushcraft, um, his question is, how do you deal with a silent treatment after telling your wife yeah, you've booked a week-long Frontier Bushcraft course? <laughs> well, um, I maybe should have answered this a little sooner, um, but assuming that may have been a Christmas present to yourself, I think you probably just have to treat your wife to um, a nice Christmas present that, uh, that she's going to be happy with. Um, I know, you know, that's, that's kind of a, a flippant answer, but I know a lot of people do have to negotiate at home to have time away from family or time away from um, doing other uh, household responsibilities or uh, pay for the, the kids and, and the wife to go off on holiday or pay for the husband and the wife, uh, husband and the kids to go off on holiday. Um, you know, so I know it's difficult to come on courses sometimes, but I think um, just just make sure, I'm trying to answer, I know it's a silly question, um, but just a, a semi-serious point is just make sure that you're well prepared for the course and you get the most out of it. And hopefully your wife will see that um, you're very excited about it, um, it uh, adds value to your life, that you get a lot of enjoyment out of coming on the course, preparing for the course, getting your kit together, getting your camping gear together, maybe doing a bit of pre-reading, 
maybe practicing a few skills before time and um, then when you come back that you're more relaxed having been in the woods for a week um, you've got more time uh, for her and for family and that maybe your perspective on life has changed slightly as well and, and you know it's a slightly serious uh, answer to uh, as I know it's a tongue-in-cheek question but these are the things that you do get from coming on the courses and I think it, it sometimes People don't explain those things to their spouses, to their partners, to their, the people who are around them, that it isn't just about having a jolly in the woods or, or getting away. It's also about enriching their lives and coming back with valuable information and a different perspective which can further enrich their life um, with their family. And a lot of people say that. We get a lot of people coming on our courses who have young families and want uh, want to spend more time outdoors with their, with their family but want to have more skills for going camping they want to know more about the woods more about the environment they want to be able to show them wild foods they want to be able to enjoy those things with their kids and that is some that's a very positive motivation for coming along but for other people they've got slightly different motivations for coming along but they still get all of those benefits and i think sometimes it's worth um you know talking about those things in the open so that you know objectively rather than it being you know just uh, under the under the surface without being consciously uh, recognized and I think that's that's something that you get from it so hopefully your wife recognizes the value that it will have um, for you both in terms of your enjoyment and also in terms of um, your attitude and your perspective when you come back from from doing that training and from having that in, having the interest as well slightly waffly answer at the end um end of a day it's the end of a long year um end of a busy year for me um, and again thank you very very much for listening to these shows for watching these shows and i've got a question for you and um, we're coming towards the end of 2015 and we're going to be busy with seeing family and celebrations and taking time off work a lot of us at this time of the year um, regardless of, of what your faith is if you have faith um, it's a time of year where people are reflecting people are looking forward to the future looking forward to the next year um, what I would like to know from you in the comments below the blog post that will contain this video and podcast or in the comments below the YouTube video, what you're looking to achieve with your bushcraft skills and knowledge in 2016. So what's your bushcraft and survival New Year's resolutions? And you can put that as a paragraph, as a general aim. You, you might have a bulleted list of you know, your top three skills that you want to achieve or things that you want to improve on. I would love to know what they are and I'm sure other listeners and other viewers would love to, to compare and contrast as well. So um, please, like I said a while ago, lurkers as well. <laughs> I know there's a lot of you out there. I can see the number of people that are watching these videos and then the number of comments. So and there's a mismatch there. So lurkers as well. You've got a bit of time now, probably um, end of the year, a um, bit of time off work, perhaps time for reflection. Have a think about what you want to achieve with your bushcraft skills, your survival skills, your knowledge, maybe your experience. Maybe there's places you want to go, places you want to do a trip that you've not done before to get experience in a different environment or to apply skills you already have in an environment that's wilder than where you've been training. I'd love to hear about that. I'd love to hear about what you've got planned for your 2016. So let rip in the comments below my blog post for episode 18 or below episode 18 in YouTube. And if you're not subscribed to my YouTube channel, 
please could you do so because it's making a difference to the visibility of my videos in general to other people on YouTube who don't already know about me and don't already know about these shows. So um, if you do have a YouTube account or even a Google Plus account, please, if you could go to YouTube, go to my channel, you can find that easily from my blog, click on the YouTube link or just go to YouTube and search for Paul Kirtley, find my channel, press subscribe, I'd super appreciate that. Even if you don't go back, it just helps the visibility of my show in front of other people who spend more time on YouTube than you might. And if you're already on YouTube, you should be subscribed to my channel. So thanks very much. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And I will see you again before too long. Stay well. Take care.